If you are joining us for the first time or haven't been here in a while, we just concluded our sermon series called Origins where we looked at the core values of our church and asked the question, why are we here? Why do we do what we do? And the tail end of that series, I shared a passage from the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that has sort of gripped my heart and it's given me an anchoring sort of uh, focus for the rest of this year in terms of what we will be talking about or the various things we'll be talking about. Um, If you don't remember the passage, it's from Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul is talking about the, the dividing wall of hostility that has been torn down between Jews and Gentiles and he makes this incredible statement about what the result of that is. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, he says, the result of Christ having broken down dividing walls between these differing people is that there is now creation of a new humanity. Say that with me. New humanity. And literally what Paul is saying there is that the creation of the church is to be nothing less than a new human race. A new human race of people, a new species of human beings, an entire different countercultural way of going about life. That, that's what Paul says has been created by what Christ has done. And, and, and I don't know, maybe we kind of breeze by that too quickly, but can you just sit for a moment and think about what then does that mean for us? What's our calling? What's our purpose? If what Christ has called us to be is a new species of human beings to reflect a totally different version of humanity. I don't know. Do you have a hard time with that concept? I mean, frankly. Maybe the easiest way for me to put it is this. Look, there's lots of things going on in the world today that can be simply described just as inhumane. It's inhumane that millions of people die because they don't have drinking water. It's inhumane that the kind of racism that is tearing this country apart and other parts of the world is allowed to exist. That's inhumane. And what God is literally telling us to do and be is a group of people who would reflect humanity as God intended, a new version of humanity, of justice, of love, and of peace. Does that make sense at all? He's simply saying, be human. Because a lot of the part of the world is not human. I, I don't know if that connects with you, but it, it connects with me. It, it, alternate city, alternate society, a counterculture, it all gets to that idea of being a new humanity, a new counterculture, a group of people who are living an entirely different life. And you know what's interesting? I I like reading about the early church, and when you look at the early church and group of people who kind of lived their Christian lives, one thing you realize that they didn't keep their Christian lives private. There's no such concept as private Christian life. They lived their Christian lives out in public, and among other things, these four things distinguished them. These four things distinguished their lives that made them countercultural, a new humanity. One was a high value of life, a high view of life. This was a time in which infanticide was common and accepted. Christians come along and says, God values life. To which a lot of the Christian communities in our country today go, yes, high view of life. That's what we're about. Here's another thing that 
or uh, characterized early Christians, not as a high view of life, but they also had a high view of sexuality. They said that sex was meant for man and a woman in the context of marriage, period. To which there are certain parts of our Christian world today that goes, yes, that's what we're about. I'm not going to label them, okay? But yes, that's what we're about. And we want to elect a president that's about that. But then there were other things that described the Christians. Um, there was also um, absence of racism. I'd like to hear some Christians in this country today go, yes, that's what we're about. We're about high view of life. Uh Uh-huh. We're about high view of sexuality. But we care about the fact that God's heart is broken by racism. Here's another thing that characterized them was their generosity to the poor and to the marginalized. Again, to which... I wish more Christians in this country would speak up and say, God cares about that. Those things characterize the the Christian community. And as a result, literally, the unbelieving world had to come up with an entirely different label. uh, Let's just call them the third race. Because we can't come up with a name that would describe who they are. We are beginning and launching a, a new sermon series called The Revolutionary Life, Embracing Countercultural living. And essentially, what we're going to be talking about during this sermon series, you guys, is exactly that. We're going to talk about what does it mean for us to be this new group of people, new humanity? What does it mean for us to be a city within a city, a totally counterculture? What does it mean? And we are going to be painfully specific. We are going to talk about issue of money. Is that okay? We're going we're gonna to get into your grill about how you spend your money. And your possessions and your treasure. We're also going to be painfully specific and we're going to talk about things like singleness and dating. Oh, God forbid. I'm tired of people saying, can you please talk about dating? I don't like talking about dating. Not because I'm married. I don't talk about dating because the Bible says nothing about dating. (laughs) It doesn't. This is written in a culture where you were married by the time you were 13. So there's nothing on dating. I'm sorry. So I can't go look at passages and go, how hot. But I will talk about in the context of singleness and what it means to. I'm also going to talk about sex. I'm also going to preach about, I've never done this, unfortunately, about marriage. So we're going to get painfully specific. I'm not going to tell you when I'm preaching what, so you show up. <laughs> yeah, I know you guys. He's talking about money. I don't want to go. He's talking about I don't want to go. When's he talking about dating again, singleness? Some of you will gravitate towards the sermon series because, look, uh, you love it when I talk about missional stuff. See, you've kind, of, you've kind of arrived at this place in your Christian life where you realize that the church doesn't exist for you. The church is you for the world. And I say that again, the church doesn't exist for you. The church is you, and you exist for the world. Big difference. Big difference. So you like it when we talk about being missional, more missional. What does it mean for us to be this countercultural community? And you're going to love every single moment of this and gravitate. And then there are those of you. You're struggling in your spiritual life. Your spiritual life, you're in a funk. Your spiritual life is a mess. You're, you're all over the map. You, you're not feeling connected to God. It, it took an enormous effort just to be here this morning. And you're sitting there going, could you please talk about something that will help me with where I'm at? Um, 
let me say a couple of things, but let me say this up front. Um, I ask a question. How many of you would say that your spiritual funk and many times your spiritual deadness so on and so forth is ultimately at some points related to issues of relationships, dating, singleness, marriage, and sexuality? Anybody? Uh, it, it is related, isn't it? So it will intersect at some point. Matter of fact, can I say this? I think the root cause of a lot of times why we're where we're at spiritually is oftentimes very much connected to these things. So no, I'm not going to sit here and talk about, here's what you need to do to get out of it. But I will address things that at the end, if you were to be honest and go, maybe that's why I'm kind of where I'm at today. Um, furthermore, how many of you would say, that the problem that you have spiritually is related to issues of money and possessions and treasures. Raise your hands. Okay, see now? That's very interesting. Because if I were to ask you, raise your hands if you think sexuality, marriage, dating is a cause. Raise your hands. Majority of you raise your hands, and a handful of us would have been like, ah, for money, possessions, I think, I guess. You know, Jesus said something very interesting. He said in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, watch out for all kinds of greed. Watch out for all kinds of greed. It's very interesting because Jesus never said, watch out for all kinds of adultery. Why? Because adultery isn't important? Because adultery isn't destructive? Because adultery doesn't affect you spiritually? Absolutely not. Here's the difference between adultery and sin of greed and materialism. When you're committing the sin of adultery, you know that you're committing the sin of adultery. Unless you're completely delusional. (gasps) You're not my wife. (laughs) You know that's not your wife. You know that's not your husband. Jesus never says watch out for sin of adultery, but why does he watch out for sin of greed, materialism, things you do with your money? Because very few of us ever know that we're committing the sin of greed. We don't think it's our problem. We don't think it's much of an issue. Other people, but not me. And frankly, many of us hang around people that spend way more money than we do So we always feel frugal and middle class no matter what, right? Compared to him or her. Do you know what, guys? Let me put it this way. And this is why you need to come for the next couple of weeks as we talk about this. Listen. Here's how intimately related money, possessions, treasures is to our spiritual life. Listen to this. Listen to this. Regardless of how much money you make. People in our country talk about worshiping the almighty dollar. We don't worship the almighty dollar. But do you know what money and possessions and treasures does? It shows you what it is that you ultimately worship. See, spiritual deadness comes from idolatry and lack of faith in the gospel. Let me break it down this way. Spiritual deadness comes from, spiritual struggle comes from the fact that there are other things that are more important, more valuable, more precious to us. There are idols in our lives that take our allegiance, our loyalty, our attention, our affections. And if there are idols in our lives, it is going to be affecting our spiritual life with God. But also another thing that affects our spiritual life is lack of faith in the gospel. What is the gospel? Gospel is belief in who Christ is and what he has done for us. You better believe that what you think about how God sees you will affect how you live. You better believe that what you believe about how you see yourself and how God sees you will dictate how you live. And so here's what money, possessions, and treasures does. Whether you have lots of it or little of it, it will show you at the end of the day what it is that you value. What it is that you look to for affirmation. 
for, for, for worth, for value. It's not accidental that some of us, when we struggle spiritually, we go shopping. You think, well, I just, you know, I just need to just get out, you know, clear my mind. So I'm just going to go. You know why? Because when we're not doing well spiritually, we're not finding ultimate worth value from God. We're not finding that ultimate, yes, you are valued from God. I'm going to look to other things to find value, worth, affirmation. It's a little subtle for me. Can I tell you what mine is? When I'm struggling spiritually, this is so screwed up. When I'm spiritually, you know what I do? I buy lots of books, Christian books, preaching books. You're going, what? How does it work? Here's how it works. Listen, when I'm struggling spiritually, you know why I buy lots of books? You know what my idol is? My idol is saying, I'm a good preacher. I'm a good teacher. That's how I feel affirmed. When people go, that was really insightful. That was really good. So when I'm not connected to who God is, when my idol, my idolatry is knowledge, my idolatry is affirmation from other people, when I'm not centered, I buy lots of books, and I find it easy just to spend money. What do you find very easy just to spend money on? What areas you just kind of spend? You don't even think twice about it. And what is at the end of that trail? What is at the end of that trail? See, what we will be talking about when we talk about countercultural living, ultimately, ultimately, you guys, will affect you spiritually, personally. So if you're not on board with the whole, let's be missional, <laughs> it's okay, because this will speak to you and where you're at. We want to reshape the culture. We want to reshape the culture the way we view money, the way we view possessions, the way we view things. We want to reshape the culture about how we go about doing that. Uh, and so as we launch this today, let me just go ahead and, and kind of bring us to this. Uh, here's how I would describe how our culture today uh, goes about money, possessions, and treasures. Um, <laughs> we buy things we don't need with money that we don't have to impress people that we don't even like. That's us. And some of you are nodding. We spend money that we don't have. I'll talk about that next week as we talk about that. We spend money we don't... Oh, shoot, I told you what I was going to be talking about. We spend money that we don't have to impress people that we don't even like. And our houses are littered. Your closets are littered with things that you don't need because that's the case. Why? Why? We live in a culture where we associate things and stuff with things like value, worth, significance. Our culture reminds us just about every day that the thing that you have, the shinier, the bigger, the better, the more expensive, the happier you'll be, the more significant you are, the more people will accept you, so on and so forth. We live in a country, listen to this, we live in a country where last year we spent $264 billion on advertising. That is more, that is more than the GNP of 200 countries in the world. We live in a country where people will spend $2.5 to $3 million for a 30-second ad in a football game. We live in a country where advertising reminds us every day, you need more. You've got to have better. It's got to be shinier. 
it's got to be faster. It's got to be more expensive. Have you looked in the newspaper lately? I just picked this up from CVS. That's why I have it here. I picked up the Sunday newspaper. Sunday newspaper. Have you, have you gone through the newspaper lately, anybody? You know, we got the websites. So we, we normally look at the uh, news on the web. L- let me show you. Uh, let me just show you. This is a Sunday paper. Uh, does anybody know what this big old middle section is? It's called ads. So let's just, you know, that's ads right there. Uh, the thickness, the thick, it's almost the same, okay? So let's go ahead and put the ad right there. Uh, 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 there's a main, the, the main front section right here, and you got arts and entertainment. Uh, you got travel. Uh, you got business. Uh, in other words, three things that constantly, again, remind you. You need more. You need to spend more. You got to go. You got to... Okay, so let's go ahead and put these over here. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? Here's an entire section on GM showroom on cars. By the way, there's lots and lots of advertising on cars. Did you all know that? Did you all know that? Okay. And and what what goes to your mind when you see that? You know what goes to my mind? Oh, this is so embarrassing for me to admit. Uh, I'm driving a 10-year-old Honda Accord. It's it's not really a clunk. It's about 95,000 miles. For the last four or five months, I've been obsessed with wanting to buy a new car. I have. I have, I'm like obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with wanting to buy a new car. And my wife looks at me and says, you're such a bad Christian. No, she doesn't say that. She, she, basically, she basically looks at me and says, what's wrong with your car? End of conversation. There's nothing wrong with my car. It drives fine. I drive two minutes to work. It's how close my office is, right? One minute to work, and it's like two minutes to church, but I drive, but I buy. Why? Do you know how much car advertising? Okay, there's real estate. There's, okay, so instead of going through all this, because I don't want to bore you, you guys get the point. Let's just go through the, the, the main section, okay? The primary thing that you first pick up. And here's what, uh, what I find, okay? Some, 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 uh, some, some, some uh, article on the front here. And then immediately, almost the entire section on second page is an ad. On watch. Watches, jewelry. And then second page, you've got a little bit of uh, article here and some story. But then the other half is advertisement. More advertisement. An entire section on cars. Hello. Okay. An entire section on cars. You wonder why, right? And then there's an entire section on, oh, love this. One gal's bling is another gal's bobble. Bobble? Bobble? Changes. It's an entire section on diamonds. Some more on furniture. Oh, and ladies, of course. An entire page on makeup. Macy's Lancome. An entire page, okay? And there's some serious world news right there, right? Oh, uh, another. Macy's having a sale. It's called the Glam Gets Real Sale. An entire section. It just doesn't end. Here's the next page, literally. And another entire section. Hugo Boss is having a sale, guys, ladies. Yeah, yeah, and they're not so cheap. An entire section. My notes are flying all over the place here. Uh, <laughs> entire section on phone ads. An entire section on vacation. Oh, and not to be outdone, Verizon. Oh, yes. The center section of the Chicago Sunday Tribune, an entire section. Message, your cell phone's out of date, man. Come on, time to keep up. By the way, have I mentioned I've been wanting a new cell phone for like a year? Okay. 
an entire section on rugs. And not to be outdone, two pages later, U.S. Cellular has an entire page. Right after that, Sprint has an entire page. <laughs> Got some furniture. And of course, how does this end? I, I, I could go on and on. Hewlett Packard is having a sale. We live and breathe in a culture that says, you need more, you need better, it's got to be shinier, it's got to be up to date. What you have isn't good enough. We live and breathe in a culture that reminds us that these things are somehow affected to our happiness, our significance, our sense of worth. And you know, as much as we hate to admit it, because we laugh, and it's a nervous laugh, as much as we hate to admit it, we buy into this. That's why you work the way you do. That's why you accumulate. That's why you spend. That's why we go and, 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 and get that thing that we, we bought, insured, which costs even more money now, just so that we can enjoy stuff. And this is really close to home for some of us because we grew up in families where our parents made this mistake and we vowed, I'll never do that. And here we are as adults and we're doing the same thing. The dangerous thing about this is this, and here's sort of where we're going for today, this morning. The dangerous thing about this is because I think we work so hard to earn and to spend, to accumulate, and so on and so forth, we fall into what I call the myth of ownership. We fall into the trap of thinking that all that we have ultimately belongs to us. Our son is picking up a new word. Jenny and I didn't have to teach him. We never uttered this word in our word. We rarely have to. It's a four-letter word that starts with the word M. Everybody on count of one, two, three. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, yeah. Mine. Never taught him that word. <laughs> we share. Parker, say it with me. Share. No, mine. Share. Mine. Uncle Screwtape, the well-known demon of C.S. Lewis's creation, said, humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven as it does in hell. That's from eternal perspective. The greedy word mine is not only sinful, it's downright silly. See, the reality is, if you and I would think for a moment, you guys, how much of the stuff that we have do we really own? Every month I'm reminded that the house that I like to think is mine, we get a bill that says, da, 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 no, not so much. A brand new car that we drive every month, as much as I like to think it's mine, we get a bill from Toyota that says, oh, no, it's ours. Not only that, but if you guys think about it, at some point we're going to have to give it all away. We can't take any of this stuff with us. We can't take any of the stuff with us. At some point, whether we like it or not, we're going to have to give it away. A, a visible, tangible reminder that very little belongs to us. And yet, and yet, when it comes to being radically generous and countercultural with our money, possessions, and things, we have a hard time. Hard time living our lives biblically. Here's the cultural perspective that we're going to deal with head on today as we lay a foundation for the next couple of weeks. The cultural perspective is, it's my money, I earned it, and I'm going to spend it however I want. 
culture perspective. It's my money. I earned it, and I'm going to spend it however I want, wherever I choose. And that comes face-to-face with the biblical perspective that we're going to have to wrestle with this morning, you guys. That says God is creator. He owns everything, and he has given us the material world as stewards for a kingdom mission. God is creator. He owns everything. Yes, everything that we have. And he has given us the material world as stewards for kingdom mission. That comes face to face with our cultural perspective that says, it's my money, I earned it, and I'm going to spend it however I want. To me, there's very little that gets to the heart, heart of radical, radical Jesus-following living that impacts as much of of, of our lives as we do than this aspect where we can begin to change the language from it's my money, how can I give as little of it and still get away with it to it's God's money, how can I give as much as I can for kingdom mission? Open your Bibles with me. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, and and, and I've preached on this before. Uh, And for those of you that are like, he's preached on this before. Yes, you will hear something that's familiar. You will hear something that's brand new today. I guarantee it. And then you will hear something that is new, but shouldn't be new, but is new because you weren't paying attention the first time. So it will be new today, okay? So we're all together on that, okay? First Chronicles chapter 29, and I'm going to start reading from verse 10 on, but let me give you a brief backdrop and background of this passage. Daniel, Daniel, King David has lived an entire full life, and he's come to the end of his life. And David wants to build a temple for God because he's living in this palatial palace, king's palace. And he's looking around and seeing a a, a beautiful building. And yet he is hit with the realization that the very presence of God, the thing that houses the very presence of God, the tabernacle, is outside in a tent. So David says, I am going to build a temple for my God that will be unlike any other temples for any other pagan gods around here. And so David does this. He decides that he's going to go before God and say, God, I want to do this. And here's what God says. God's answer comes back to David and says, David, good thought, but you can't do it. And the reason why God gives is this. You have been a warrior. You have shed much blood. And so I'm going to give this desire that you have to your son Solomon, and he will build a temple. Now, what would you do if you were David? David does something that very few of us would do. You know what David decides to do? Instead of going, Solomon, God gave you the task. You go raise the money, you go build it. David says, if I can't build a temple myself, I am going to do the next best thing, which is raise all the money in order to build a temple. And so David goes on this massive financial campaign. And listen, he raises $17 billion, scholars say. Much of that comes out of his own pocket from the king's treasury. He raises all the money to build a temple that he will never see in his lifetime. You know why that's profound for me? Because a lot of people today give because they could have that little brick at the front of the building that says, Mr. So-and-so, date, da-da-da-da. Or on that big old thing in the block, you know, donate it by. David gives and does all of this work for a building he's never going to see in his lifetime. Because he's motivated by something else. What is he motivated by? Look at his prayer. This is so powerful. Verse 10. Can you guys put up the passage up there? 
David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in in heaven and earth is yours. Listen to the pronouns. Pay attention to the pronouns. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with you how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. This just preaches itself. I don't even have to give you insights. First principle that comes out is everything belongs to God. Say it with me, ready? Everything belongs to God. One more time. Everything belongs to God. Notice how many pronouns of you and yours are, are, are scattered throughout this passage. David looks at the end of his life, he looks at everything that he's done, everything that he has, and he has the audacity to say in verses 11, 12, 14, and 16, everything in heaven belongs to you. Everything is yours. Everything comes from your hand. Principle. Despite how hard you worked, despite how hard you worked for how much you have or how little you have, the Bible says that everything you and I have is a gift from God. Everything that you and I have is a gift from God. The word hand, the word hand in Hebrew is powerful. The word hand in Hebrew has connotations of power and activity. Hand, power and activity. And so what this passage is saying is this, everything that you have comes from God's hand. That is, everything that you have comes as a result of God's power and God's activity in your life. That means if you were born into a rich family, and you will inherit wealth, you even inherit wealth as a, as a result of being born in a rich family. God says that family is a gift from me. That it's a gift of God that you and I were not born in the 12th century on the edge of poverty in Tibet somewhere. But that we were born, when we were born, into the family that we were born. For some of us, if you're the opposite, that is you came from maybe not such a well family, but you worked really hard and you earned everything. God says all the wealth that you have in possession is a result of God's activity and God's power in your life. How? Giving you the mind that you have. How? Giving you the opportunities that you have. How? Giving you the circumstances, situations, orchestrating, frankly, things that are beyond our control for you to be able to have what you have. Only God is the reason that these critical factors and ingredients came together at just the right time with the right people. Everything belongs to God. Here's a question. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that everything you have to get from God? Listen, listen. Do you know why this is so intimately tied and whether you believe the simple biblical truth that's found throughout Scripture and will affect your spiritual life? Because here's the thing. You ready? At the bottom, at the center, at the anchor of our Christian life is a simple word called grace. That we are who we are, we have what we have as a result of grace. 
Grace upon grace upon grace. God's uh, our undeserved, unmerited favor from God. And here's the thing. When it comes to forgiveness and eternal life and a relationship with God, oh, it's all grace. But then when it comes to our possessions, our wealth, our success, we work and function not from grace upon grace, but we function from works righteousness. I earned it. I worked hard for it. I met the right people. I put myself in circumstances. And God comes along and says, if grace is not at the center and the engine that is running everything about you, not just your eternal life and your forgiveness, but everything that you have is grace upon grace upon grace. Your job, your family, your children, your resources, your wealth, your money, your possessions, your relationships, everything that you have comes from a generous, gracious God. And that is not the anchor and the center of your soul. You will always feel like you're hitting a ceiling in your relationship with God. Always. You see how intimately tied this is to our spiritual lives? What is the engine that is running in your soul? Not just of your salvation, but everything about you. It is a gift from God. It is a gift. Or I worked for it, I earned it, I met. You know what's so cool about this passage? You know what David says? Ain't not even being fake. His audacity to say, yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. Think of how, how, he's a king. Think of what he has. Think of what he has gone through for this kingdom. His calling. Years in the desert running from a crazy king. The betrayal of his favorite son. Adultery. Think of all the things that he's gone through his life to build this kingdom. And at the end of his life, he says, yours is the kingdom. Not because I'm smart, I'm strategist, I'm a charismatic person. Not because I worked hard, but yours, oh Lord. Come on. We look at our little kingdoms and go, my king, my, my, I, uh." and David says, yours All of it. All of it. That is so convicting for me. Because I talk a good talk. God, this is your church. It's yours, oh Lord. And then there are moments where I'm like, oh, I worked so hard for it. No, 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 five years, six years. And God goes, is it really about you? Any of it? Any of it? What do you think? Is this hard? Of course it's hard. Of course it's tough. That's why the second principle that comes out of this is even tougher, actually. (laughs) Not only does everything belong to God, everything comes from God, that automatically means then we are not owners, but we're what? We're stewards. We're managers. Verses 12, 14, and 16 again. Look at, li- listen to the pronouns. He says, wealth and honor come from you. Everything comes from you. We've given you only what comes from your hand. All of this abundance that we provided, it came from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. You know what the powerful principle there is? Listen to this. Let me just illustrate it for you guys, okay? Um, God says in it, in his hand is wealth and possession. In his health, in his hand are wealth and possessions, which also means power. And God says, he gives you wealth and possessions, and so now it's in your hands. It's implicit in your hands. He's given you that. Listen, 
First, first thing that I need to highlight is this. Money and wealth in God's hand means power, means influence, means activity. When God gives you wealth and possessions, you know what's in your hand? It's not just money. Oh my gosh, it's not just money. What is in your hand is what? Power, influence, ability. That's what's in your hand. It's not just, I just, you've got an enormous responsibility because what is in your hand from God's hand is power, influence. And think, it's just as true then as it now. What do I mean? Back then, when you had power or when you had wealth and when you had possessions, it meant that you had power, authority, and influence over land, over property, over households, over your financial dealings, over relationships, and over people. And one of the things you and I have to realize as Christians is, is how little, how much, it doesn't matter. When God gives you wealth and possessions in your hand, it's more than just money. It's the ability, power, influence to control your sphere of the world. Do you get that? Do you get that? That it has enormous potential for influence and for activity. But here's the principle. Verse 16, very clear. Even though wealth and possessions comes into your hand, and as a result, power, influence, authority comes into your hand, God never gives up ownership. It still belongs to him. Present tense, verse 16. Even though it's in your hands. We're not owners. We're temporary managers and stewards of wealth, resources, possessions, influence, power that God gives us in our hands. Jesus talked all the time about this dimension. It was so important to him. Do you realize how how often Jesus talked about money and material resources? You know what's really powerful for me is the parable that sticks out about this stewardship, aspect stewardship is Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus teaches on the parable of the talents. Five talents, two talents, one talent. You know the story. Uh, the, The five talent servant invested he makes five more two talents servant invested makes two more and the one talent he buries into the ground and he is cast out into darkness with his gnashing of teeth. And Jesus Christ uses that to say, listen, that's not about eternal life and future and when he comes. You know what that's about? Jesus is literally saying, from my first coming to my second coming, the thing that I'm going to be looking for in my servants is stewardship. Let me say it this way. Jesus is saying, first coming, second coming, the thing that I am primarily interested in is not, have you been sexually pure? Important. Have you been a morally good person? Important. Have you kept your nose clean? Important. The thing that he is looking at from first coming to second coming is, what have you done with what I've entrusted to you? That is the thing I'm going to be looking at. That means he's given us kingdom mission. That means he's given us kingdom purposes. That means that everything that we have, our attitude, our approach towards life is, God, I am not an owner. I'm a a steward. I'm a manager of what you have entrusted to me. What would you like me to do? What are your agendas, God? What What are the things that are in your heart? What are the things that you value? What are the things that you cherish, God? What are the things that are on your priority list? And you know what's powerful? Jesus didn't leave us to guess. Here are the things that God is about among other things. Here are the four things that I found throughout Scripture on what God is about. At least these things. If we are going to be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us, first is this, the worship, witness, and nurture of the people of God corporate. Let me say that again. The worship, witness, nurture of the people of God corporate. That is, when you give towards the ministries of this church, when you give towards the ministries of what's going on here, 
paying the rent, paying bills, paying staff. You are giving to God's kingdom causes. Let me say something right up front. We don't need your money. Our leadership team just cringed. Our leadership team just sunk in their chairs. I'm serious. I'm serious. If you're one of those people that came, you know, you walked away from the church because speaking about money reminds you of the, you know, the 80s kind of comb over evangelists that are on television going, give your money to the Lord. Put your hand on the screen and your generosity will be answered. No, I'm not going to do that again. It has nothing to do with us needing your money, please. You will rarely hear me come up here and say, give to our church. Be fi-. No, this is not about that. This is about what are you doing to be faithful as kingdom stewards of what God has entrusted to you. Here's another thing that God is about. You ready? He's about the poor. Surprise, surprise, surprise. He's about the poor. You cannot read the Bible and not come to a conclusion that God is for the poor. What's so funny? Is there something... What's that? Yeah, the entire Old Testament. That's right. (laughs) How annoying it is when people come and go, did God really talk about the poor? Are you kidding me? God is about the poor. God is about the poor. Here's another one. Individuals with material needs. The Bible says in Galatians 10, do good to all, especially those of faith. Individuals with material needs. Let me stop right here. Everybody look up here, please. Let me stop right here. I'm going to give you a challenge, okay? And I'm putting myself, I'm putting my neck on the line for this, but I'm going to give you a challenge. On September 2nd, I'm September 2nd, mark the calendar, on September 2nd, we're going to collect a special offering. None of it's going to come to our church. Oh, you still got to, you know, give to the church too, so there's two, okay? Let me make that really clear, okay? On top of, we're going to collect the entire offering. None of it's going to come to our church. It's going to go to two places. One of it's going to go to the Covenant World Relief that's giving money towards the earthquake victims in Peru. 15,000 affected, many of them homeless, many killed yet to be found, okay? Globally, we're going to give, we're going to give the Covenant World Missions. Second, it's more local. It's more local. It's a woman named Rita, Rita Sally, whose daughter was gunned down, going into eighth grade. Shanna, going into eighth grade, was gunned down in front of her school. You guys know this. It affected, it shocked Logan Square community, so on and so forth. Some of our folks have been in intimate contact with her and her family. And I've asked them, how can we help? What can we do? What are the ways that we can be generous? They're going to need money to move to a new place, to pay rent, so on and so forth. September 2nd, September 2nd, above and beyond what you normally give to the church, we are going to collect a special offering that's going to go locally to this family and globally to Peru and covering world missions. I'm going to remind you guys again next week, And then September 2nd, we're going to collect an offering specifically for these two. Why? Because that's what God has given you, the resources in your care for. And lastly, and I'll talk about this more, another cause that God has, another cause that God has is this. It's not part of the Old Testament, New Testament, tithes and offerings, but you see Matthew chapter 15 and Jesus specifically adjusted. It's giving towards your family, taking care of your aging parents and your children. The Bible says over and over again, heavily invest there for then you are doing kingdom work. Heavily invest there for you are doing kingdom work. At least four things, among other things, that we could be giving towards in which we're doing kingdom work for kingdom mission. How are you doing? How am I doing? How are you doing? How am I doing? Here's the last principle. I'll end with this. If everything belongs to God, 
And everything comes from God, and we have been given these things as stewards, as managers. Lack of generosity, lack of radical generosity is not being stingy. If everything belongs to God, everything comes from God, lack of generosity is not lacking compassion. Lack of generosity is robbery. It's dishonesty. Why? Look at what David says. Look at what David says. In verse 16, he says, O Lord our God, for all this abundance that we have provided for building your temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. And then he says in verse 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart, and you're pleased with integrity. Everybody say that with me. Ready? Integrity. And that's out of place. Because David should have said, and all, uh, David should have said, I know, my God, that you test the heart and you're pleased with generosity. You're pleased with giving abundantly. You're pleased with doing all that we can and not being stingy. And David, though, says, you are pleased with integrity, honesty. Why? Look, we would be stingy if it was ours. We would be lacking compassion if it belonged to us. But if it belongs to somebody else, and you use it whatever the way you want to, it's not lack of compassion, it's robbery. It's dishonesty. If there was a Securities Exchange Commission in heaven, <laughs> y'all would be looking at some serious jail time. Maybe there is. Maybe we are. Lack of generosity is not just lacking compassion. It's not just being stingy. It would be if it's yours. But if everything belonged to God, everything comes from God, and he says, are you using it for my kingdom stewardship when we fail to use it in the way that the owner desires for us to use it? It's, here's a stronger word, ready? It's unjust. It's unjust. Let me end with this. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. God says to the nation of Israel, his people, who are withholding their tithes and their offerings from God, this is, he says, will a man rob God and yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you in tithes and offerings? You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Now, the powerful thing about that that has puzzled Old Testament scholars is this, that word rob there in Hebrew literally means to plunder, to pillage, to rape, to devastate a village, a creation. And God uses that word to say, when you are not generous, radically generous with what you have, you are plundering, you are pillaging my creation. You and I go, what the heck are you talking about? God created our world to be a place of shalom. Follow me. An interdependent, interwoven, interconnected place of wholeness, for all so that when people who are in relationship with God in relationship with each other and creation as they're following God's standards as they're following God's principle with our resources about what God would have us to do what the result is is shalom it's wholeness it's security it's stability it's wellness for all of God's creation because of sin there is an integration because of sin our world there's disintegration because of sin there's brokenness because of sin instead of there being wholeness there is there's brokenness And here's what God says. 
God says, I want you to be shalom agents. And the way you do that is this. I have given you resources, not as owners, but as stewards. And the extent to which you and I, watch this, plow back into resources, into the human community. The the extent to which you and I take what God has given us and plow that back into the larger human community, especially in areas where disintegration, especially in areas where there's brokenness. The result is not just, hey, I feel good. The result is shalom. So communities are strong. So families are strong. Nation has drinking water. Millions of people don't die because they don't have basic health care. That's disintegration. God says, plow that back. Watch this. But when you and I fail to recognize managerial role, our steward role, and instead of plowing back into the human community what God has entrusted to us because of more opportunities and more resources. When we, and when we deny the managerial role and, and give very little, very little to God's causes and to God's purposes and keep all of it for ourselves, God says, you're not just being stingy. You are adding, contributing to the plundering of God's good creation. As you allow disintegration to continue. That's why God comes along and says, and yet you rob me. Lack of generosity is not just lacking compassion, it's being stingy. It's unjust. It's unjust. I know that's hard for us to hear. Is it okay for me to say? I just got to say it. We've got to take our eyes off of this individual. Am I giving a lot to a corporate, global perspective and go, what am I doing to bring about shalom to all of God's creation? Let me end with this, okay, guys? Let me end with this. And I hit you guys real hard today. And uh, don't worry, though. Next week, uh, I'm going to hit you even harder, okay? All right. John Wesley, one of my favorite, favorite people in the entire world. Uh, he's not alive, by the way. He's dead, but... Uh, He's one of my favorite people. Uh, He was one of the great evangelists, for those of you who know, of the 18th century. Listen to this. And this can be an anecdote, an illustration for the rest of this sermon series, actually. Listen to to this. This is true. True story. In 1731, John Wesley began to limit his expense so that he'd have more money to give to the poor. In the first year, his income was 30 pounds. Does anybody know what 30 pounds was worth in 1731? I tried looking up in the website. I just, I was lost. I, I don't know. But I think, that's a, I think that's a decent amount of money, right? 30 pounds. He found, though, he could live on 28, so he gave away two and lived on 28 pounds. In the second year, his income doubled. Why? Because John Wesley's ministry became more prominent, reached more people. His income doubled, but he held his expenses even. In other words, he lived on 28 pounds. So he had 32 pounds to give away, a comfortable entire year's income. In the third year, John Wesley's income jumped to 90 pounds as he became even more famous, more notoriety. And yet he gave away 62 pounds. Why? He was still living on 28. In his lifelong journey, Wesley's income advanced to as high as, listen to this, 1,400 pounds a year. John Wesley was making 1,400 pounds a year, but he barely let his expenses rise above 28 pounds. He said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possession at a time. When he died in 1791 at the age of 87, the only money mentioned in John Wesley's will was the coins to be found in his pockets and in his dresser. Most of the 30,000 pounds that John Wesley earned in his life, he gave away. And you know what he wrote? For everybody to know. His last words were, if I leave behind me 10 pounds, 
You and all mankind bear witness against me that I lived and died a thief and a robber. What are you doing with it? Let's pray. Today we have the opportunity to not just respond in song, we have an opportunity to respond as we come forward and take the bread and the cup. And church, if you ever doubt God's generosity towards you, what we are doing today is a visible, tangible reminder to us all that we worship and serve a generous God. generous God spend a moment asking the question God what would you like me to do with what you have entrusted to my care what would you like me to do with what you have entrusted to my care And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and then said, This is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, make sure you do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup saying, This cup represents the blood of the new covenant, blood that has been shed for you. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Communion, Lord's Supper, reminds us every time that we serve a God who became flesh and died on the cross for the sins of humanity. Not just so that you and I would enjoy eternity in heaven, but so that you and I would be kingdom agents fulfilling kingdom purposes here on earth. As you come forward today, be reminded of God's generosity towards you. Thank Him. Worship Him. Praise Him. Communion servers, will you please come forward? The way we serve communion in our church, who's your partner, is through intention that as you take the bread and you'll dip it in the cup. don't need to wait for everybody to be served when you come up and our servers serve you 
for you to go back to your seats and worship free to linger up front if you would like whenever you're ready come forward the Lord invites us to his table I asked the worship team, Chris and the worship team, to specifically lead us in this hymn. Instead of walking out here feeling all bogged down about, oh, I've been such a terrible steward, I wanted us to walk out here going, God, you have been so gracious and so faithful to me. Amen? Amen? I want us to declare that as we worship our God. We got us how much or how little. Think on who our God is and let this be the praise of your heart. Let's be this praise of your heart. Father, we express our gratitude and our thanks for your faithfulness to us. God, you have been so generous. You have been so gracious. You have been so faithful. Church, if if God has been this for you, clap and thank your God. Offer up a praise. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. He is good. He is good. He is good. Yes, He is. Yes, He is. Yes, He is. Hallelujah. I'm looking forward to this journey. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you back here next week as we continue to ask the question of what it means to be revolutionary. Take care, you guys.